0: Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and in this episode, we are nearing the end of Canto Three. We have been through the gate of hell, abandon all hope, all that stuff, and we have passed through the first of the... Maybe damned, maybe not damned, maybe we can't officially call the neutrals damned. The people who neither made a choice for good nor bad, but somehow tried to remain neutral their whole life and so can't even get into hell and can't even get into heaven. I hope that that last episode of the podcast just showed you what a strange poem we're dealing with and how, as I told you, Dante is more than willing to move the fence. In this episode, we're gonna move beyond the neutrals. We have seen all we're going to see of the one who made the great denial and all of them being stung by wasps and crying into worms on the ground and all that stuff. And we're passing on. So here we go. Then setting my gaze to look beyond them, I saw people on the shore of the big river, which made me say, master, Let me know who these are, and what propensity makes them appear, or so I see them in this faded light, so eager to cross over. And he to me, you'll be told these things when we stop our steps at the sad shore of Acarante. Thus, with eyes lowered and shame filled, fearful because my words maybe offended him, I stopped talking until we got to the river. Behold, coming toward us in a boat, I saw an old man with thinning white hair crying out, Curses on you, evil souls! Don't ever hope to see heaven! I come to transport you to the other shore, to eternal darkness, full of heat and cold. And you, over there, you living spirit, get away from those who are dead! When he saw that I didn't budge, he said, By another way! By other ports, you will find a passage and cross, not here. A lighter boat than mine must carry you. And my leader to him, Don't torture yourself, Karen. This is willed where what is willed is what is done. Don't question us any more. At this, the ferryman's shaggy jowls relaxed as he guided his boat across the bruised swamp, though his eyes were set into wheels of fire. But those souls, exhausted and naked, changed color and gnashed their teeth as soon as they heard his cruel words. They cursed God and their parents, the human race, the place, the time, and the seed of their conception and even their birth. Then they drew close together with loud lamentation at the bad shore that awaits each person who does not fear God. Okay, I think I'm just gonna leave it. I don't think I'm gonna read it again. I think instead I'm gonna just jump right into going through it. But before I do, I wanna say a word about where we are. Mm, Two words about where we are. One, we are at, for lack of a better word, plot. Plot, a story. There's a story running forward. We had come to such great stops over and over again. And the interpretive framework and architecture was so Thick. It was stopping us as well. That it seemed as if the poem was suddenly going to diverge into something plotless. Some giant medieval debate about rhetoric and grammar and philosophy. It was gonna we're gonna get there. But it didn't seem suddenly as if we had a plot. And you'll note that we've got a plot running now. We've got motion in the journey. And we've got motion in the characters too. The characters are changing around us and there's motion in the journey. That's the first thing. The second thing I want you to notice, and this is important to notice, is this third canto actually breaks into two parts. Well, three parts, but let's say two parts. You notice we had that part about all of the neutrals floating around and being, well, not floating around, running around behind a banner and being stung by bees and all that kind of stuff. And we had that whole section, and now we've got a second section, which is standing on the shore of this river while Karen the Ferryman, we'll talk much more about that in just a second, Karen the Ferryman shows up to ferry people across the river. Really, there's three parts to this canto. There's a prologue, which is that gate of hell, the abandon all hope bit, and then there's the scene with the neutrals, and now the scene with the soul standing on the river's edge, but my point is that the canto is breaking into discrete scenes, and this is something that's actually new. We haven't experienced this quite yet in a canto. In Canto when we had a bunch of various episodes, maybe The beasts and Virgil's appearance, but they were all kind of strung into one line. This seems more of a demarcated canto we watch the neutrals running after their flag and then we get to this part that starts then setting my gaze to look beyond them telling us we're moving now to the next scene as if a canto has more than one scene in it. We got maybe a couple scenes in the second canto with Beatrice up in heaven and Lucy and the gracious lady and all that stuff but you know that was all conversationally reported and it was the game of telephone it wasn't like this this is like plot scenes I think this is an important development in the comedy. It's an important, maybe Dante's not learning how to do this, but it's an important shift that we're seeing that now the plot is running more quickly. We're going to get more than one thing in a canto. And here we actually get, as I say, two. And this indicates to us that the speed of the narrative itself is picking up. If you write a play with multiple acts in it, And in one of these acts, there's six scenes. You know that the speed of the plot is picking up. Or if you write a novel, and in one chapter you have, you know, a character... The diner, and then you have his mother at home, and then you have him driving home, and then you have I don't know his father at the factory. Wow, this is a really stupid novel. Um, if you have those things all in one chapter, the you, the novel is moving very quickly between points of view, and the pacing, as we would say, is picking up speed as it moves because you can't you're not going to spend twenty pages on each of those scenes. Okay, that's the same thing here. The pacing is picking up. So let's look at exactly what. Is happening in this pacing then setting my eye to look beyond them uh, beyond the neutrals i saw people on the shore of the big river which made me say master let me know who these are and what propensity that makes them appear or so i see them in this faded light so eager to cross over so the, the, we get this idea that there's all these souls standing on a shore right and they're kind of agitated that the boat's late. <laughs> they're waiting for their ferry across Long Island and they're agitated <laughs> that the boat's late. I'll let you discover whether which side of Long Island is hell, whether it's Long Island or Connecticut, but whatever. They're waiting there and they're, they're waiting to cross. And he says to me, you will be told these things when we stop our steps at the sad shore of Acaronte. Now, I said that in the Italian. I'm gonna talk about why in just a second. But first, let's talk about Virgil and what is going on here. They're having a spat. Virgil is correcting him. The very next line is, thus with my eyes lowered and shame filled, fearful that my words maybe offended him, I stopped talking until we got to the river. Why are they having a spat? They're already at each other a little bit. What's going on here? There's several ideas and let me offer you a couple reasons why well three reasons why this may be so one maybe Virgil doesn't want to be the tour guide after all Dante says now okay tell me who these guys are and what propensity makes them want to cross so eagerly you know who, who are they and what are their characteristics and maybe Virgil's just sick of being the tour guide. <laughs> I had a friend the other day say that she finally understood why Yoda, when she had children, she finally understood why Yoda laid down and died because he just couldn't take one more of Luke's questions. Well, <laughs> maybe that's part of what's going on here. Maybe Virgil's irritated at being treated like a tour guide of hell, and he does, he's going to stop that before it even starts. Maybe. It sounds a little modern, and it sounds a little uh, not in totally in Virgil's character. Virgil, loves to talk on and on and on, as we'll see, as well as we've already seen. Virgil likes to talk on and on about things, so it's funny that he would be hesitant. Or maybe he's hesitant because of what's to come. This is my second answer. I get this because I know what is to come not the people on the river, but that in a bit, just a little bit, just a few more lines, just when we get down a little farther in the poem, Virgil is going to blanch at the thought of descending into hell. He's going to turn pale. And maybe this is the first bit that's setting up. And maybe, I'm okay with this, maybe Dante is setting up Virgil's character so that when we get in a few more lines outside of the passage from today, but in a few more lines, when we get to the bit where Virgil quails or blanches or changes color at the thought of descending into hell, maybe Dante's setting this up for this. We're already getting this notion that, uh, that Virgil is a bit reticent about this journey. And I'm, I'm actually okay with that idea. It, it makes Virgil a rather modern character. It sounds like a modern character motivation, but it's kind of cool in the end. Or, and this is the more traditional answer, the more traditional answer offered is that Virgil corrects Dante because he has become um, impetuous or impatient. And that Dante, if you remember, Virgil had corrected him earlier that he was so cowardly, back in Canto 2. Twice Virgil called him cowardly. Then we saw all the neutrals who are cowards. So Dante was in danger of becoming, I guess, one of these neutrals. And now Dante has overcorrected, and he's too eager, and Virgil has to pull him back in the line and say, you know, hey, buddy, keep it all in check, one thing at a time. That's the more traditional answer. It's, it's less character-driven and more thematically driven. That is, that Virgil, as the older teacher, has to hold Dante in check, and it's certainly <laughs> certainly 700 years of interpretation. Can't be wrong but I do like the idea that maybe we're setting up Virgil as someone who is not exactly thrilled about having to take a walk across hell. After all, this is where he lives, and it's not the nicest place in the universe, to say the least. Okay, so why did I say acarante? I called it acarante because I want it to be Dante's. I want it to be in Dante's words, and I want it to sound like it jumps out at you. I want it to not be normal because it isn't normal in a Christian poem to suddenly encounter this classical river out of mythology. And so I left it there so it would sound strange because it is strange. If you know a little bit about mythology, you might be surprised that this is not Styx, but it's not Styx even in Virgil's Aeneid. We'll get to Styx later, but uh, the notion that Charon floats across Styx is not necessarily true in a lot of these mythological works, and it's not true here. Dante's picking up this river from Virgil. Dante doesn't know Homer, but he's picking up this river of the underworld from Virgil, and from the Aeneid, and he's placing it here. And this might give you pause. After all, he's picking up a river of the underworld from Virgil and not from the Bible. We'll come back to this in just a minute when the old man Karen comes on the scene. You should be ready for a little shock there. So Dante's been reproved, and they get to the shore of the river behold coming toward us in a boat i saw an old man with thinning white hair crying out curses on you evil souls don't ever hope to see heaven i come to transport you to the other shore to eternal darkness full of heat and cold and this is the first time that you might get an idea that hell is not going to look like the traditional burning up of flames because heat and cold. In fact, one of the things we're going to discover about hell is that much of it is a very, very cold place, not a hot place. Okay, so perhaps a little bit beyond what you imagined. And you, Karen goes on, over there, you living spirit pointing Dante the Pilgrim out, get away from these who are dead. When he saw that I didn't budge, he said, by another way, by other ports, you will find a passage and cross, not here a lighter boat than mine must carry you. This is another slight glimpse of purgatory. We'll get to this much later in the purgatorio, but there is a boat that takes the souls to purgatory as well as this boat that ferries them across into the deeper parts of hell. Just to say that's going to occur. We're going to see that at the opening of the Purgatorio. And just to say, I, I want to correct something while we're standing here with a brief glimpse of Purgatory and the boat that carries you to Purgatory. Just a brief glimpse of what's ahead. But I want to say, there's an idea that this poem is divided into thirds, that it's divided into Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. And certainly I've said that repeatedly. But in the end, my dividing it into thirds, as it's often divided into these three canticles, is not actually accurate. The poem is actually in two pieces. It's in Inferno, and then it's in Purgatorio Paradiso, because everything at the gate of Purgatory, at the shore of Mount Purgatory and forward, everything there happens with the redeemed. The Poem, the giant comedy, is only one third about the damned. And not even all of that, because we've been through two two cantos and now almost a third before we're getting to the damned. So the poem is not about the damned. The poem is about the saved. It's about the redeemed. Once we hit that base of Mount Purgatory, we're with the redeemed from then on out. So in other words, the poem is in half with the second half, in parts, two parts, with the second part twice as large as the first. The first, Inferno, is half as large as Purgatorio Paradiso. (coughs) Going on. And my leader to him, don't torture yourself, Karen. And he names him, Karen, the boatman. Over the river of Acaronte or Acheron, the 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 figure who, who who transports the souls across, a mythological figure in a Christian poem. Let me just say that this gives the early commentators no end of problems. How do you get this mythic figure, a figure from pagan mythology, into a Christian poem? And they make all kinds of to-do about him, making him an allegory of this and an allegory of that. On and on, ad infinitum. what does he represent? But long ago, Robert Hollander made the grand point that maybe we should just see Karen as Karen. Maybe the ferryman across the river for the souls is less of an allegory and more of a character. This is a wild idea that Dante is somehow anticipating modern narrative, but it's not such a bad idea because Karen is so detailed in the passage. He jumps out. I, early on, let's just say, tried to make a distinction between the classical world and the Christian world, and that Dante's having to choose between forms and all that. But you know, in the end, as I told you last time, it's not actually all that true. In fact, this is a classical Christian poem. It is a poem in which the worlds fuse, and here we should see it automatically with the figure of Karen. Don't torture yourself, Virgil says Karen. This is willed where what is willed is what is done don't question us anymore. I should say that this is the longest bit of the comedy that is quoted. This is going to be, those very lines, this is willed where what is willed is what is done, is going to be quoted again in the fifth canto just ahead. This is one of the, in fact, it is the longest moment in which the comedy quotes itself. However, I should tell you something else about this is willed where what is willed is what is done. In 1317, those lines were written in the inside of the front cover of a registry of criminal acts in Bologna. They were written there by Gano de Usepi, a notary from San Gimnano. He copied out those lines from comedy in 1317 in this Bologna registry of, of criminal acts. That tells you how much the comedy is circulating and how fast in a pre printing press world where these lines, which may be written even as late as 1314, 1313, 13, 14, are already in 1317 being inscribed in a text as their epigraph. That should tell you everything you need to know about the comedy's place and its importance the minute it is being produced, or in medieval terms, the minute. Okay, so Karen tries to get rid of Dante, says you can't cross here, you got to go by another way, obviously letting us know that Dante is not one of the damned, lest we think he is, you've got to go by another way. There's a little bit of a theological problem here, how would Karen know Dante's ultimate fate? It sounds almost Calvinistic, it's not Calvinistic, but Dante's getting close to having a problem. Uh, He's going to have more of this problem later. But he's getting close to having the problem that how would Karen know what the future is and the choices that Dante will make? One of the amazing things about Dante is when he hits a hard problem, he tries to solve it. So there are answers to this coming, not in this passage. We just stand here, I stand here, and gawk at it a bit, thinking, wow, it sounds almost like Calvin. How, how does this spirit, this demon in the underworld, know that Dante is not damned? They move on. After Virgil rep- Proves Karen and says you can't stop this from happening. It, the passage says at this the ferryman Shaggy jowls relaxed and he guided his boat across the bruised swamp. Well, watch these these words, this thinning hair, these these uh, Shaggy jowls, he's unshaven, this bruised swamp. You, I picture a purple, yellow, brown water that he's crossing, though his eyes were set into wheels of fire, so somehow this is not explained other than just visualized. So somehow Karen's eyes have wheels of fire around them. This is a wild figure. The first time we've seen anything like this. Those souls, exhausted and naked, the ones standing on the shore of the river, changed color. I bet they did, I changed color too, and gnashed their teeth as soon as they heard his cruel words, and then their response. They cursed God and their parents, the human race, the place, the time, and the seed of their conception, and even their birth. This is important for this reason. The damned are still making an active choice to reject the presence of God, even here. Dante is going to want hell to be a place that ultimately the damned choose, or they choose this place over the life of the redeemed. And here we see they are still making this choice even on the shores of the river. In other words, you couldn't convince the damned not to be damned (laughs) even by showing them hell. Even by showing them this horrid demon with with the eyes in the wheels of fire and the unshaven face. Hey, what's wrong with being unshaven? The unshaven face and the Swamp that's like bruises, even all of that couldn't stop them from doing what they're doing. They cursed God and their parents, the human race, the place, the time, and the seed of their conception, and even their birth. Thereby, again, once again, we're getting just a little close to Calvin. This is always going to be a problem. How can you say that someone only chooses damnation as opposed to redemption? Believe it or not, Dante is going to answer that in the most surprising ways, but we have to wait all the way to the middle of Purgatorio and Marco of Lombardy before we get close to that. For now, let us just say the damned are still choosing to be the damned. Then they drew close together with loud lamentation at the bad shore that awaits each person who does not fear God. And that's worth stopping the passage. I'm leaving the last bit of Canto 3 for the next episode. But this is an unbelievably dramatic scene, right? A river, a swampy river. It's hard, maybe hardly flowing because it is described as a swamp too. It's lurid in its color. This unbelievable demon out of classical mythology rowing about toward them, coming, it seems, rather quickly. He comes on out of nowhere. He finds all these souls waiting, and they're waiting. Isn't that interesting? They're waiting to cross. We'll find out why in the next passage. Why are they waiting? In other words, when I say that, why don't some of them just run away? Why don't some of them look at the swamp and this this demon and this raggedy boat? I'm picturing the boat as raggedy. It doesn't say that in the passage. This raggedy boat. And why are they looking at all this? And why don't they? Why don't some of them just go? No thanks. And go running back to the mouth of hell and out back onto earth. I know that sounds ridiculous, right? But after all, mouth of hell's right back there. You walk right here. You walk right past the neutrals and right down to this spot at this river shore. Why don't some of them run away? I'm gonna have to wait for the next episode to figure out why. Before that, let me read you this whole passage one more time, Inferno Canto three, lines seventy through one hundred and eight. Then setting my gaze to look beyond them, I saw people on the shore of the big river, which made me say, Master, let me know who these are and what propensity makes them appear, or so I see them in this faded light, so eager to cross over. And heeding me You'll be told these things when we stop our steps at the sad shore of Acarante. Thus, with the eyes lowered and shame-filled, fearful because my words maybe offended him, I stopped talking until we got to the river. Behold, coming toward us in a boat, I saw an old man with thinning white hair crying out, Curses on you, evil souls! Don't ever hope to see heaven. I come to transport you to the other shore, to eternal darkness, full of heat and cold. And you... Over there, you living spirit, get away from these who are dead. When he saw that I didn't budge, he said, By another way, by other ports, you will find a passage and cross. Not here. A lighter boat than mine must carry you. And my leader to him, Don't torture yourself, Karen. This is willed where what is willed is what is done. Don't question us anymore. At this, the ferryman's Shaggy jaws relaxed as he guided his boat across the bruised swamp, though his eyes were set into wheels of fire. But those souls exhausted and naked changed color and gnashed their teeth. As soon as they heard his cruel words, they cursed God and their parents, the human race, the place, the time, and the seed of their conception and even their birth. Then they drew close together with loud lamentation at the bad shore that awaits each person who does not fear God. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast, Working with Dante. I hope you will subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. If you're just coming into this episode right now, Go back, start again. I'm walking way back behind you. Go back to the start of the podcast. You can find the opening episodes and you can walk all the way up here with me again. I'll walk with you at any point. That's the great thing about a podcast. If you'd like to see this passage, check out the website WalkingWithDante.com, which directs to my website, Markscarborough.com. There you'll find a subhead. It's got a blog on it. It's got every passage in my rough translation from English. This is my rough English translation. If you want, better translations, may I suggest Robert Hollander's or Stanley Lombardo's. Those are two great English language translations you might want to check out, but those are much more scholarly and much more accurate than mine. But still, this is my rough translation from the medieval Tuscan of the passage, and you can find it there. And more importantly, the comments are open on the blog, and we can start a conversation. Please, by all means, disagree. And please, by all means, bring all of your passion and joy to this project. Because, like me, we have to do this together in great joy. I hope to see you. See you? Mm, Maybe see you. I hope to hear you maybe hear you. I hope you'll hear me the next time on the next episode of Walking with Dante.